0: So I'm a rebel, and I prefer this. That's okay, I didn't tell anybody, Um, so it's okay. Um, So it's good to see you guys this morning. If you would, go ahead, grab a Bible, and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 12. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, then uh, there's these little blue ones that are scattered throughout the sanctuary that you can use. So I really do want to encourage you to please uh, follow along with me in Scripture As we're going today, we're covering some heavy topics. And uh, some of the things that I say to you today, uh, I want you to know that it's not me saying it. Uh, But my goal in being up before you today is that I would be telling you what God says about himself. And uh, I don't have anything better to say than what God has to say about himself. So, Luke chapter 12. Let me pray. Heavenly Lord, I pray that this morning I would not be found guilty before you as a misrepresentation of who you are and what you teach us. But Father, would you give my words grace uh, to be received well by the hearts of these people. Lord, I pray that We would be relying on your Holy Spirit to convict and to redeem, not on my words. God, you are all powerful, and I know that you can do a work in many hearts today if you so choose. And so, God, we do beg you to work. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Where we're picking up today is basically from where we left off last week, and so if you weren't here last week, i got to give you a little bit of context if you actually want to understand uh, what it is we're looking at today. So last week, we found Jesus in this confrontation with Pharisees and scribes, and uh, it happened because... The Pharisees had invited Jesus to come and spend some time with them, and they washed their hands. Well, Jesus did not participate in this outward ritualistic cleansing ceremony, and they criticized Jesus for that. They got on him because of it. And uh, we found out that Jesus kind of has like a hairpin, hairpin trigger, and he went off on these people. And uh, like he started saying very strong words against these Pharisees, accusing them of having Outwardly clean bodies and outwardly clean lives that look good to everybody around them, but inside their souls are putrid and rotting. And uh, so he starts saying, Woe to you, Pharisees! Woe to you! Woe to you! Then the scribes are dumb enough to come in and say, Jesus, you're offending us with this too. Well, woe to you too! And like he just, he does not let them get by with this. Jesus is mad. And then, it doesn't end very well. And so, at the end of chapter 11, verse 53, it says, And he went away from there, the scribes, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say, laying traps for Jesus." Getting him to say things that can incriminate him. Getting him to say things that will turn people against him. The pressure starts mounting for Jesus at this point. And what we're looking at today at the beginning of chapter 12 is basically this. Jesus realizes and sees the pressure mounting for him. And he sees the pressure is not just going to mount for him. It's going to mount for his disciples. One of the things that scriptures teach us is that if something happened to Jesus, we should expect that it will happen to us too. And Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for the challenge that is going to come to them. And so we start off in verse 1 of chapter 12. We're just going to read the first verse for now. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another. So think about like Black Friday shopping with Jesus. Uh, he began to say to his, dis- to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus, talking to his disciples, identifies what it was that set Jesus off in chapter 11. It was the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Look with me at verse 39 of chapter 11. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Hypocrisy, a basic definition of it would be that hypocrisy is living a double life, having a double standard. We'll talk a little bit more about hypocrisy as it's going on. But he was basically saying like, look, you Pharisees put on this outward spirituality, that you are followers of God, that you are clean, You're, you obsess about outward cleanliness and rituals, but your hearts are far from God. You don't know the Lord, and this infuriates Jesus. When those who represent God act hypocritically, it infuriates him, and he will not let it pass unjudged. Because it's the Pharisees who were supposed to be teaching the people about who God was. It was the Pharisees that were meant to communicate to the world the God that they are called to worship and that that loves them and that they are to love. And so when you have the representatives of God living hypocritically, it doesn't just say something about them. It tells the world something about God. Which is why it's no... I mean, no surprise why our world today criticizes the church when almost every single month, maybe every single week, there's a new report of sexual abuse that's happened among the leadership of churches. I mean, can you blame the world for what they think of the church as an institution when there's those reports? Can you blame the world When the church proclaims to be a place where you can find grace and mercy and forgiveness, yet if you were to come to a Wednesday night business meeting of a lot of churches in our own community, what you would find is some of the meanest, nastiest, most hateful people you've ever met in your life. How can we proclaim to be a church of grace and mercy? Those things defame the name of God. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. But it's good for us at this point to remember who Jesus is talking to right here. See, he's not ranting to the Pharisees anymore. He's talking to his disciples. He tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. There's no reason to warn somebody about something if it's not possible for it to happen to them. Jesus is warning his disciples that this is something that can happen to you and you need to beware of it because you can fall into the same camp and you can receive woe and judgment from God just as they are. He calls it the leaven of the Pharisees, just in case you don't have a a good familiarity with with what that might mean. Leaven in, in their day and time was an illustration that they would use. Leaven was a fermented piece of dough that you would add to a larger piece of dough to let it ferment, to let it rise, like adding yeast to a bread recipe that you might make. Um, and it, it kind of causes the air, like air bubbles to, to be created, and it gets nice and fluffy. And if you've ever had Alicia's sourdough bread, delicious. Um, and, uh, and so you add yeast to it, and it ferments the dough. But the reason they would use this, it, it's, it's an illustration of contamination. Because once you add this to something, you cannot take it out. It's a microbe. It will spread throughout. It's kind of like taking uh, like food coloring and dropping it in a glass of water. Once you color that water, you cannot uncolor that water. You can only color it more. And if you keep trying to color it, it's just going to turn black and nasty and gross. And your Easter eggs are not going to look nice. It spreads. When hypocrisy takes hold within a group of people, it is very, very hard to dislodge it. Beware. Eleven of the Pharisees. Beware. It is completely possible that you can fall into a life of hypocrisy. And I just want to stop here and say this. Uh, there are some passages of Scripture that preachers can't wait to preach in their lives. Like John 3.16, man. Oh, home run, right? How can you go wrong? But when it comes to passages like this, Preachers do and they rightly should tremble to come to you with this word because I know it is completely possible for me to be the man trying to get a speck out of your eye and I might have a log in my own. I know that's possible and that's why I'm relying on my family, my one-to-ones, the other pastors of this church to call me out if I'm living a hypocritical life. This is a warning to us to not live hypocritical lives. And hypo- hypocrisy in our lives takes different forms. It shows up in different ways. It's not just like it is for the Pharisees where you follow all these rituals and things like that. But there's no heart behind any of it. Um, hypocrisy could take a couple of different what I would call flavors. Uh, so let's, uh, let's just go through a few of them. One that's easily identifiable is that you have a public purity but private sin, secret sin, where you publicly profess that you de- you denounce anybody that practices X, Y, and Z. But when you are at home, when you are alone, when you're traveling, you actually engage in that sin yourself. It's hypocrisy. Another one that we could think of that's similar to that but a little different is public godliness private godlessness, where you live your life publicly proclaiming that you are a follower of Jesus and you do spiritual things. You bring your own Bible to church. It's even an old-fashioned one that's made with paper. You bring it to church with you and you come and you actually sing when everybody else sings and if you're asked to pray, you pray when if you're... <clears throat> even asked to lead something like teach something you're willing to do it and you actually enjoy being seen as this spiritual leader you actually enjoy being revered as this godly person but if you're honest when there's nobody to impress when there's nobody to watch the performance why bother a diagnostic question to know if this kind of hypocrisy exists in your life is just to answer the question when you are alone and there's no one to watch you but god How much do you pray? When there's no one to listen to your prayers, when there's no one to impress with your Bible reading, when there's no one to impress, when there's nobody to watch you, and it's just God, is that the only audience you need? Another kind of flavor of hypocrisy that we can probably recognize from the book of James in Scripture is he says this phrase, faith without works is dead. This was me before I became a Christian. I professed to be a Christian. I would tell you that I was a Christian, but I did not live a Christian life. Everything about my life was about my own pleasure, my own desires, my own goals. I enjoyed sin. I loved it. And I would tell you I was a Christian. It wasn't until I was a freshman in high school and I was at church and the preacher, the youth pastor preached and said that just calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you one. And that was the first time I realized that I'm only calling myself a Christian. There's no way I am one. If you look at what a Christian looks like now, look, it's not your works that save you. You're saved by grace through faith, but works that follow up that faith is evidence that faith exists. And if you are not living a life following after Christ, I have a doubt that you are actually a Christian. And to call yourself one but to not live as one is a form of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy isn't just fooling other people around you. Sometimes it might be you fooling yourself. The last flavor of hypocrisy that I want to give you is similar to the last one again, but it's a little different. All hypocrisy is the same, by the way, you're going to see in just a second. It's all motivated by the same thing, but it shows up differently. And this one is is especially dangerous for those of us that are regularly in the church. It's when you have the right doctrine. It's when you have the right understanding of God's word and what he calls you to do and how he lives our life. And you understand what the scripture says, but it does not flow into and affect your life and the way that you live. Let me give you some examples to demonstrate what I'm talking about. You believe that God accepts all people from all backgrounds into his kingdom, but you yourself try to separate yourself from certain people that you find detestable or unpleasant. You try to stay away from them. That's a contradiction. Or maybe it's that you believe the kingdom of heaven is the greatest treasure that you could ever find. And that's what you believe. You can see it in scripture. Yet your life is still filled uh, clearly with the motivation to have money and wealth. And you try to go after the next toy that can come your way. And that's where you find your joy and your satisfaction. You believe the right thing, but you don't live like you do. Or your relationship with the Lord, you would say, is the most important thing in your whole life, except when it interferes with your kids' sports or your weekend getaways. It's the most important thing for you, the most important thing for your kids, except when it means that it's going to interfere in all these other things. Or maybe you believe that God is absolutely in charge of your life and can tell you to do whatever he wants to do, to go wherever he wants you to go at any point in time, except for there, God. Can't take me there. That's off the table. That doesn't fit the plan. That's not where I'm comfortable. You can't send me there. You have the right belief, but your life does not follow it up. It's hypocrisy. And it plagues the church. And it defames the name of God to where the world looks in at us and says, who is your God? You obviously don't believe him because your life doesn't say you do. Oh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So why would we do that? Like, why do we all fall into this trap at some point in time? I'm going to break it to you. If you're not living a hypocritical life now, you probably will be tempted to at some point soon. All of us are. All of us have fallen prey to it. So why would we? I'm sure every single one of us would detest a hypocrite. Uh, Like the word hypocrite is one of those words like hate. Like we try to not use it except for the worst of people or the clearest of examples. And so if we hate it so much, why is it so easy for us to fall into it? Well, Jesus gives us a clue in verse 4. We're going to skip a few verses. We'll come back to them, but we're going to verse 4. He says to his disciples, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. The root cause of all hypocrisy is fear. It's fear. Fear of what other people think. Fear of what might happen. Fear of all kinds of things. We have this example in Galatians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to reference the story. In Galatians 2, Paul recounts an event that happened where he and the apostle Peter were present. Peter was eating with this group of Christians that came from a Gentile background and was enjoying his time with them. But then something happens, a group of Jewish Christians comes into the scene and Peter says that Peter is afraid of the circumcision party, these Jewish Christians. So what does he do? He separates himself from this group of Gentile Christians because he doesn't want, he's, he doesn't want this group of Jewish Christians to criticize him. He's afraid of what they might think, that he's actually sitting and eating with Gentiles. It's hilarious because that's exactly what Jesus did. How many times was he with Jesus when Jesus was sitting with tax collectors and sinners Yet when his time came, he acted hypocritically. Paul actually says that he was not living in step with the gospel, like the last one I mentioned. He was not living in step. Peter believed the right thing, but he was not living that way, and it was because of fear. So let's talk about some of our fears. We fear to be bold and share our faith openly because we might lose our jobs. That's a real fear. Or at the very least, we might become a social outcast. We fear to confess our sin publicly because we're afraid of being rejected and shunned and hated, of losing everything. We fear that we won't fit in with the crowd, so we say the right words, we perform the bare minimum, but we have to keep people at an arm's distance away from us because we know that if they get too close, they're going to find out we're fake. And we're constantly afraid of people seeing through our lies and our deceits. We fear to live holy, dedicated lives to God and follow wherever Christ is calling us because of what our families might think. Because we don't know what the future holds. And we're just scared. Filled with anxiety. I want to point something out to you. Jesus does not tell his disciples that their fear is illegitimate. He doesn't tell them, you're being silly. There's nothing to be afraid of. But what does he say? He says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. There's actually a risk here. (laughs) Jesus is telling his disciples, yeah, they can kill you. Yeah, you might lose your job. Just because... There's a fear. And like Jesus doesn't tell us it's illegitimate. He doesn't tell us there's nothing to be afraid of. This is part of the Christian life. Every single one of the disciples will live a life filled with persecution and hatred. All of them but one will be killed for their faith. And that's why Jesus is warning them here. He's saying, look, the world is going to give you opportunities to live hypocritically and to save your life. It's going to give you opportunities to do that. That's what the temptation will be. It's coming. He doesn't say that their fears are irrational. Or unfounded in reality. They're actually very real. They're very real. You may very well lose your job. Or become a social outcast. Kids. Students. Students you may very well not get that scholarship that your parents want you to get so badly if you prioritize your walk with the Lord. Hey, parents, I want to break it to you. Your children probably will not have all of the same opportunities for success if you prioritize their church involvement over academics and activities. They probably won't. I want to tell you this. You you probably, this, this scares me. You might not be able to put as much into retirement if you decide to financially give regularly and sacrificially to your church. Or, get this, choose a job that makes you more available for kingdom work because it doesn't require you to work so much or it doesn't pay a high enough salary. These are all things that are very real. They're not unfounded in reality. It's not that they aren't risks, they are risks. So how on earth are we supposed to get beyond them? How on earth are we supposed to overcome the fear of these very real things in our own lives? Jesus gives us a very simple answer. You've got to put your fear of these things into real perspectives. Look and see what he says next. Actually, before I get there, I want to give you an example about something. This would kind of lighten the mood, too. We need that. Imagine that you have a fear of getting to church late. I don't think our church has a fear of that. (laughs) To be honest with you. I'm just teasing, but seriously. Imagine that you have a fear of getting to church late, so you pull up to those railroad tracks on Forty Four to get to the church, and it's too late to turn around and go that back way under the tunnel. Everybody else is probably doing that anyways. So what do you do? You're afraid to get to church late, so you weave your way across those barricades that have already come down. The lights are already blinking. Yeah, you're like, that sounds pretty stupid. Because when you consider how silly your fear of being late to church is in comparison, when there is something so much greater at stake, all of a sudden, you lose fear of being late to church. I'm sure that happens to you every morning, right? But that just shows how irrational it is of how much, listen, there's, so much, there's something so much greater at stake. Your life, it's okay to be late when your life is at stake, Don't try to cross the railroad tracks when the train's coming. That's how people die. That's exactly what Jesus does for us. He puts this fear. He doesn't say it's not real. He just puts it into perspective for us. In verse 5, he says, But I I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell stakes just got higher it just became real what is the perspective that we're to have that overcomes our fear of all of these worldly people and all of these worldly things it's that there is something so much greater that you should fear what is it it's that god has the ability to cast your soul into hell and living a hypocritical life Fooling everyone else around you does not fool God. Look back up at verses 2 and 3 with me. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Or hidden that will not be known. Therefore whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the housetops. All of your secret sins... All of your private godlessness, all of your hypocrisy will one day be revealed. This is a sobering thing. The book of Hebrews, chapter 4, goes even farther for us. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. One day you will have to stand before God and give an account for your life And all of the hypocrisy, all of the lies, all of the private sins will be revealed. You can't hide from God. He knows your heart. And it is a terrifying thing to think that some will approach the throne of God to be judged expecting that they will be led into heaven. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 is one of the most terrifying passages And the whole Bible to me. Chapter 7 verse 21 of Matthew. Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me. Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father. Who is in heaven. On that day. Many. He says many. There's a lot of people. That will say this. Many. Will say to me. Lord, Lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That should terrify us. That there will be many people who on that day of judgment approach God expecting, they expect to be led into heaven, only to be turned away. And what will they be relying on? They will be relying on their outward actions of religiosity to get them through those gates. But they will be turned away because their hearts are rotten before God. This is why Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Be sure of it. You might be turned away at the end. This sounds really strange to us. The idea of fearing God. I mean Scott it, it almost sounds like you're trying to manipulate me. To make a decision to do something. That this is hellfire and brimstone preaching. To get people to have an emotional reaction to things. No this is what the scripture is saying. Everything I just said to you is written right there in scripture. This is real. Fearing God is real. The threat of eternal judgment And hell, towards you, is God's grace to you. Let me explain that. You might know the song, Amazing Grace, and how the second stanza starts. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." The threat of hell is God's grace to us because it motivates us to repentance. That is the proper response That if you're feeling conviction right now of your sin, the proper response is to repent. It's good. It's meant to lead you out of improper living, of wrong actions. The same way that the discipline that you give your children is meant to lead them out of sinful actions and habits. Proverbs 22, 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it from him. That'll preach. Not only is instilling fear in us God's grace to us, it's also healthy to be afraid of things that you should be afraid of. Continue the the idea of a child fearing their father's discipline. It is a healthy thing for a child to fear the discipline of their parents. It's a healthy thing. It's a good thing. It will save them much trouble later in life. It will save them from many bad decisions, from many bad habits. They won't live lives that give in to the peer pressure around them. Sounds like fearing the other people. They won't live lives that give in to their own desires of their heart. But rather they know, if I make this decision yeah, I'm afraid of what this person's going to say, but I know the discipline of my parents is going to be so much worse than this. Their fears are put into perspectives, and that's different depending on the age of your children and how that looks and obviously all of that. We've all seen children who do not fear the discipline of their parents, and it is a sad thing to see, and it's a humbling thing because guess what, parents? It's not always up to you. Whether your child fears your discipline or not. It might not be that you're not doing anything wrong. It might be that that you're not doing anything wrong. You're doing what you're supposed to do. You're doing what God's called you to do. But it's the child's heart. It's their heart that's leading them astray. And it's so sad to see that. Because what you're observing there is a child who is untamable, uncontrollable, misbehaved. They have this fantasy view of the world that this world is all about them. And whatever they want to do. So a side note. Specifically to dads right now. I want to talk to you dads. This is one of the reasons that our discipline of our children is so important. It's one of the reasons that our discipline of our children needs to be an intentional, calculated effort to drive sin out of their life. And to lead them in paths of righteousness. It, our discipline of our children is never an angry response of our expectations not being met. That's not discipline. That's just our sin coming out. When you discipline your kids, you're teaching them something about God. And you're preparing them to receive his discipline. You're preparing them to see the reality of hell. In their lives. Discipline is a grace. Fear is a grace to kids. And it's a, it's a grace from God to you. It's healthy to have these fears. And in fact, it's not just healthy. It's the safest place you could ever be. Think about how safe your children would be if they heeded your warnings about this life. Think about how much better their lives would be if they listened to you. The safest place that you can be in this life and in the next is in the fear of God, to fear the Lord. And that's why I think Jesus says what he does next. It's kind of puzzling unless you see it with those eyes. Look at what Jesus says next in this passage, starting in verse 6. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. It's not that hard for me. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. That's a comfort to us. You are of more value than many sparrows. When you're living in the fear of God, it allows you to function in a healthy way because it removes fear of things that you should not be afraid of. Things that eternally, with the right perspective, don't matter. It's not that they're not real, it's just that they don't matter. The father who disciplines his child is the same father that child runs to when they're scared of something, it's the same dad. It's the same parent. The reason they do is because they know that their daddy is bigger and scarier than any of the monsters under the bed, than any of their friends that would be mean to them. And while they live in the fear of their father, their father protects them and loves them and cares for them. To live in the fear of God is to enjoy his protection. And listen to this. What Jesus just said here, I think what he's saying is this. God loves you so much, he would never let anything happen to jeopardize your eternal security. God looks at our lives with an eternal perspective, not a temporal one. Which is why not only he's he's willing to allow bad things to happen to you in this life, he sometimes asks you to charge right towards them. Because he will protect you. He will keep you. The second part of the way that stanza of amazing grace goes something like this. I'll start at the beginning because I can't do it just in the middle. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Fearing God removes all the other fears. I want to imagine with you for just a moment what it would be like to live a life With no fear. No fear. Imagine the burden that would be released if you openly confessed your secret sin and asked for forgiveness from God and from all those around you. How much more enjoyable would this life be if you were not constantly worried about changing your clothes, changing your hobbies, changing your vocabulary, just so that you would fit in with a group of people? Oh man, that'd be easier. Imagine the pressure that would be released if you didn't have to work so hard to keep up this religious sham anymore. But you could be real in front of people. You could express who you truly were. You could talk about the struggles that you have in life. You could talk about the doubts and the fears that you have with other people. Because you don't care what they think anymore. You care what God thinks. Imagine what it would be like to have absolutely no anxiety about the future. All of those things are possible if you live in the fear of the Lord. All of those things are possible. Church, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. If we, as a church, and as individual Christians, choose to fear man over God... It will lead us to live lives that do not love God. It will lead us to live lives of hypocrisy that do not honor Him and do not bring glory to Him. But if we live lives that above all fear God, we will be protected, cared for, and in the arms of our dear Savior. I want to leave you with this today. I want to read verses 2 and 3 again. Jesus says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the housetops. I want to remind you of the reality that one day it will all be exposed Jesus in Matthew 7 we referenced there. there is this day when we will all stand before God's throne to be judged to be separated out to the sheep to the goats one entered into the kingdom of heaven the other entered into the kingdom of darkness there are two sides to take let's just separate this room into three different categories for a minute there's This set of chairs, that set of chairs. Those that live in the kingdom of light, that trust God, love God, and live lives in the fear of the Lord will be welcomed into heaven. Those that do not proclaim even to know God will live lives and they will go to hell. I mean, the Bible is clear about this. But this middle section, if we try to live lives of both proclaiming that we know God and putting on this outward appearance that we do, yet we live lives that are closer to this and we are in this middle, lukewarm, hypocritical section, you will be cast out. You'll come to God and you'll say, Lord, Lord, did I not go to church? Lord, Lord, did I not pray? Lord, Lord, was I not baptized? And you will be cast away from God. Do you... Do you feel any tinge whatsoever that that might be you? And if you do, today is the day to repent. Today is the day to take hold of the fear of God and to ask him for his grace and his mercy. You want to know why? Because he will give it to you. Our God loves you. And just because he threatens hell does not mean he does not love you. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. Eternal life is offered to you right now. Right now. You can have that. The Bible says that if you will but confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. It says that if you would but confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, it's so much better to live your life in the fear of the Lord than the fear of man. I promise you that. You are much more valuable than sparrows. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we approach your throne of grace. Fearful, recognizing that there is a threat on our souls. Lord, I pray that you would help those who are here see that it is your grace That causes us to fear. That it is your grace. That leads us. To conviction and so I pray that their hearts. Would respond accordingly. That that same fear. Would be relieved. By the grace and the mercy. Of our Savior Jesus Christ. I pray these things.